Hello and welcome to the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour special of How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's show... It's the only reasonable conclusion we can come to, is this is a battered fish per hour situation. Hat size and neck strength limit the size of the animal. Other species have now been reported to be vengeful, including chimpanzees, as well as reports of vengeful camels. (laughs) Today's episode, Jack, very excitingly, is our first, are we calling it, I guess it is a sponsored episode. Yeah. Yeah, Jack and I are delighted to announce that we are back for two special episodes. Um, People may remember we did a special one for the Festival of Nature. We've Mm -hmm. done some about the place. But the next two episodes you're going to hear are with tremendous thanks to the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour. ASAP. And so, well, animal behaviour. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's the first one where I think where we've come at it talking about a study. Like the study Ah. of... I see. Such and such. Yes, got you. An example of such and such, the study. So, kicking things off, I thought I'd just give us all a rundown of what animal behaviour is. As a science, animal behaviour is called ethology. Mm. As a field, it's kind of new in a sense. Who do you think the first animal behaviourist, ethologist, may have been? It's a big one. Who's our (sighs) guy? In biology and zoology. Uh, uh, He's on the money. As as in... He as, literally uh, was on the money. Uh, uh, Darwin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a field, it basically began with Darwin and then evolved a bit, and I'm going to get into that. But researchers typically study a type of behaviour across a group of animals. So, right. an ethologist might study aggression in several species species got you exactly and it's rapidly growing uh, covering everything from animal communication to their emotions to even culture mm. and their sexuality so it's constantly changing so darwin was one of the first ones uh, he had a book 1872 the expression of emotions in man and animals Ooh. and that is sort of one of the big launch points yeah. in the modern study of ethology and we're talking about from a scientific perspective, because I guess we can say that, you know, humans have been looking at animal behaviour since the dawn of time. Yeah, I'm sure Plato, uh, yeah. Aristotle... Well, people hunting them, ex- like, making pictures on caves about them were depicting animal behaviour and stuff. But what we're talking about is the actual written study. Well, this is, I what I understand is, is a big bit of the turning point. When Darwin, he had his book, he kicked, well, he kicked the whole thing off, yeah. inverted commas. And he encouraged his protege to look into it, but his protege started. He's called George Roma, uh, George Romain. I'm just saying we never hear about Darwin's protege. I know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he had one. Uh, well, I thought that as well. But it's a hell of a shadow to live in. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's, he quite obviously failed to live up yeah. to it. <laughs> he's not on the money. No. Yeah, he's not on the stamps. He's not on the money. He's not in the Natural History Museum. Not on the bus stops. No. <laughs> you know, not on the back of a takeaway menu. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't quite made the same cultural dent <laughs> no. as Darwin did. But his initial study, he looked at learned behaviours okay. of animals. And it was a bit anecdotal. It wasn't very scientific, really. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the big pieces of it becoming a science because it had to come up with a structure with which to actually compare and contrast behaviours yeah. across different things. 
And so the next wave of ethologists then sort of ramped it up a bit and developed the tools to do that with what is called an ethogram. And an ethogram is going to pop up a couple times perhaps, but it's basically you might make an ethogram of a dog and that is writing out every behavior a dog does and then you might tick them as it so wags its tail, uh, okay. tick, barks, ticks, and you can look at what's happening and what stimulus. How often it's doing certain things in relation to what? In blah, relation blah, blah. to different stimuli, exactly. Got you. And so doing that begins to give you the framework yeah. for which to classify behaviours across different things. Yeah. But digging around to find an example, I found it very difficult to find an example of a human one. Mm. I'll come back to that later. Okay. Maybe we're self-conscious. I don't know. I wouldn't like somebody to yeah. <laughs> sit and do an ethogram of me and document all my behaviours. But of course, the very easily found ethogram was one of mice. Okay. Lab animal the world over. Uh-huh. But I think there's great similarity we can find with the mice at the end of reading this in this particular example the top line here is sexual behaviors okay so these are sexual behaviors of a mouse so after sexual motivation is present the male mouse will one explore the female mm -hmm. that'll be your box tick whatever two pursue her yeah three mount her right so he's really <laughs> something more and more like chesterfield on a friday <laughs> night four copulate with her yeah Five, post-copulation grooming session for the male. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. However, it has got the tagline in it at the bottom of this ethogram. It is important to note that the female may discontinue the sexual encounter at any point. <laughs> Striking similarities. <laughs> <laughs> Between ourselves and the mice. Yeah, our ethnogram... Uh, eth ethnograms? Ethogram. Our ethograms wouldn't look quite so different. So it was really difficult trying to find one. The mice was dead easy. The closest I could get in my search was someone who had looked at the courtship behaviours in humans. Okay. <laughs> right. right. But in trying to piece this ethogram together, yeah. or in doing this study, they had used match.com in 2018 as their their study a time capsule data right set. and so whereas kind of the as mouse ethogram might have listed individuals as study number one study number two i just love this paper because it has them as their username <laughs> which i don't even know how like ethical that is <laughs> is it um is it was it listing there like what they were doing what they were saying in a chat for I didn't, I, I didn't go into the whole one of the things it did do was it analysed the area of skin displayed in their profile picture Ooh. which is interesting yeah that is actually quite interesting yeah and then maybe yeah going into their success rate I don't know yeah. but just a study paper listing a load of because 2018 is also pre-dating app boom I would say yeah, but t Tinder's well established by they 2018. Were, they were still there, but what I mean is like now, date, it's just your normal name, you know what I mean? Yeah. The kind of like, whereas yeah. this was all, you know, like Smooth Rob 1987 kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> it's just such a window into a time of past, you know? I wonder what that mouse who at any moment could have been shut down by the female would have, you know, yeah. <laughs> would have called himself. All right, animal behavior. There are an increasing number of journals covering it um, with such <laughs> surprising names as 
Animal Behaviour, <laughs> which is the journal of our sponsors, the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour. And in getting ready for this, I loaded up the journal and I just thought, let's have a quick search, see what's out there. So I googled, I didn't go, I, I searched goose okay. on the journal page yeah. to see what articles were out there for geese behaviour. Yeah. Delighted to say the top three results were all about aggression. Yes, <laughs> getting the geese. On geese, actually on that point, don't know if this is something you're going to come onto. Aren't geese quite fundamental? Conrad Lorenz. Yep. What do you know about Conrad? Conrad, am I right in thinking, Conrad, it was about the geese, and wasn't it about imprinting? Yep. He was the one who, maybe not proved, but he's certainly the best example of that if a goose hatches and you're the first thing it sees, I don't know if it's instantly or for a certain amount of time, it imprints on you, it follows you around, it thinks you're its mum. Yep. It's imprinting in yeah, yeah, yeah. 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, so he was one of the major players in the growth of ethology. Mm-hmm. Um, he got the Nobel Prize in 1973 for developing it. Back when it was easier to get Nobel Prizes <laughs> yeah. by just hatching a load of geese and letting them follow you around. <laughs> this goose follows me. Wow, he's really onto something. <laughs> But him and another guy got that Nobel Prize, but he was a big proponent of pushing it forwards. And they also began to look more kind of from the 70s onwards at social ethology. So looking at the behaviours of groups, not just individuals. Mm. Because like I said, with the ethogram, you might have looked at a dog wagging its tail. But social ethology is then looking at, well, how does the group dynamic work? How do groups interact with each other? And this is where it begins to integrate more elements of psychology, neurology... And this is kind of a whistle-stop tour of the history of ethology. Mm -hmm. It also then saw the formation for the International Society of Human Ethology. People started to look at humans through this lens. And something I quite like in 2008 was the term peace ethology got coined, which was someone looking at, uh, it was a paper published as a sub-discipline of human ethology concerned with issues of human conflict, conflict resolution, reconciliation, war, peacemaking, and peacekeeping behavior. So it's basically trying to study the behavior of humans and working out how to make them get along. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, reconciling. So it's big. It's It's big. Big stuff. I'm going to say they need to work a bit harder on that. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite there yet. (laughs) And it's still studied today with it branching off into ever more fields. Uh, a bit more sociobiology and most recently one of the things I quite liked is these two researchers have come out with a paper postulating that animals may have beliefs oh yeah that's juicy it is juicy so part of this is this idea that for an animal to have beliefs it needs to be able or for an animal to be considered as possibly having beliefs I guess because we're in the world of postulating and theories you're looking for evidence that they can maybe interact with the world in slightly different ways. Mm. So one of the markers is a flexible use of information about the world. Okay. So the first criteria for the existence of beliefs is that an animal must have information about the world, but it must not simply lead to an automatic reaction. 
Now, I feel a bit personally affronted here because they then go on to say, like a frog, <laughs> instinctively snapping at a passing insect. I have a very soft spot for frogs. I don't think we should immediately slate them as some kind of non-believing heathens of the animal world. They're actually very pious. Yeah. <laughs> Monks of the swamp, I think they like to be called. Because, of course, whilst frogs get chucked under the bus here yeah. for their apparent lack of beliefs, of course, who gets pulled in as an organism which might have beliefs mm. the crows the crows of course the church of crow the church of crow we're a, well, i'm a paid up member of the church of crow <laughs> <laughs> monthly subscriptions <laughs> yeah. and they're put forward as an example of animals which manipulate their environment i mean we've we've yeah we've covered crows we've spoken about crows yeah yeah the crows are well spoken for yeah so whistle stop tour of the history whistle stop introduction on how you kind of classify it and how you might measure it when studying a behavior like i said sexual behavior aggressive behaviors and all the rest yeah but how many different types of behavior are there well we all know jack yeah we all know having googled this yeah <laughs> and looking at the results yeah. we all know that there are two types of behavior two which is why the next line told us that there were three types of behavior which is why the next result told us that there were four types of behavior which is why the next line told us there were 10 types of behavior which is why the next line told us the most amazing 15 types of animal behavior <laughs> which type of animal behavior are you you just, won't believe number seven just take this quiz so it's all out there to play for okay no one knows well but in breaking it down, mm. we're going to go at it this way, which I understand. And it goes back right the way almost to what I said about Darwin's protege. And he looked at learned yeah. behaviors. Yeah, yeah. And the next wave of researchers looked at more natural behaviors. So that, am I right in thinking, learned behaviors is something that's not, it's not instinctively born with. Mm -hmm. It develops over the course of its life yep. versus something that is hardwired into it and it just knows how to do. Yes. So the top two splits are instinct and learned behaviours. Mm -hmm. Examples then underneath these two top headings might be sexual behaviours, nesting behaviours, maternal behaviours, communicative behaviours, feeding behaviours. Some of the words I didn't know, which popped up, is eliminative behaviour. This mm. is behaviour connected to the removal of waste from the body. Oh, so okay. that could be yeah. scent territory marking. Yeah. Uh, rodents might build a little latrine. Latrine, yeah. Exactly. Badgers have latrines. Yeah. There's al allelomimetic, allelomimetic behavior. I don't know where to start with that. Right, <laughs> but I quite like this. Right, this is a behavior that increases the probability of that behavior in other animals, which sounds really weird or hard to get your head around. But think of schooling in fish. Oh. Or possibly, I guess, murmurations in yeah, starlings. Yeah. So their behavior is trying to elicit their behavior is trying to elicit more of their species doing the same thing that they're doing. It's a whole like avalanche cascade type animal behavior. That is cool. I like that. The one I liked as well from this was it had ants all going down the same path. So the more ants that go down a path, 
the more what? ants yeah. go down that path. Great, okay. It's that kind of behavior, which I've never heard of it before, but I loved it. And I also then wondered, and it's almost going to get peppered in here as we go along, kind of how this all goes into humans, I guess. But, you know, people talk about mob psychology. Yes. How we, people are just like, I just got swept up in it or whatever. Exactly. It's yeah. that kind of enough of a group start doing a thing so more of the group start doing the thing so more of the group start ah. doing the thing and it snowballs and that's called allelomimetic interesting doesn't exactly roll off the tongue I saw I don't know if this is the same thing but I guess this is maybe where you can start applying principles in this field to wider ones people talking about how in great cultural shifts that we've had whether that be in cultures uh, where we've Thinking of thinking of times where there's been big shifts in things like gay rights, in things mm-hmm. like whatever, it takes a percentage of people, and I think they say 25%, once 25% of the population of any given country starts to believe in something, whether that be the climate movement that we're currently going through at the minute, then the shift starts to happen and things start to move over. And I'm sure I saw this on Twitter or something. I think George Monbiot was talking about it. But yeah, once you basically reach a threshold of about 25% of the population all believing in something, then that starts to tip the balance of something else. So, so if that is an example of allelomimetic behavior in humans, phenomenally profound, yeah. <laughs> love it. Because a similar example of allelomimetic behavior that I found was when cows lie down. <laughs> <laughs> cows aren't quite operating on the same kind of civil rights movement as we are not that we're aware of anyway yeah well yeah maybe it's the right to lie down (laughs) supposedly the more cows lie down the more cows will lie down the more cows will lie down they're a very peaceful bunch the bovines and we must respect their right to lying down (laughs) so we've got our instinctual behavior We've got our learned behaviour. Just to hit us all with a definition that we can hang our hats on. I've never said that before. (laughs) We can hang our hats on. (laughs) But it is a largely inheritable and unalterable tendency of an organism to make a complex and specific response to environmental stimuli without involving reason. Yeah, so it just does it. It just does it. And in just doing it, one of the big things that Conrad, Lorenz, Mm. essentially... We're going to call him the father of modern ethology. Okay. He really yeah. put the shift in. Okay. Is in studying instinct, we've got these things called fixed action patterns, which is basically something an animal does that once the stimuli has happened, the animal will then respond to it in a very set series of events that will always go to conclusion. Okay. Before then resetting the clock. Yeah. So we've already had geese mentioned for their aggression yeah but and you've already mentioned uh, conrad and his imprinting of the geese mm-hmm. but one of the other things he picked up on with geese is and an example of a fixed action pattern is their egg retrieval behavior oh. so gray lag geese if they're sitting on a nest like many ground nesting birds if an egg becomes displaced from the nest the gray lag goose will roll it back to the nest with its beak so it will reach out hook its beak and, and roll it all back the sight of the displaced egg is the sign, it's the stimulus that triggers it all and elicits the fixed action response, uh, fixed action pattern of it to get the egg back. So the stimulus, it sees the egg. Next, it extends its neck 
over the egg and finally it rolls it back using the underside of its beak. Now the point here in how it's a fixed action pattern is even if the egg is removed from the goose during the performance, it will still really finish rolling its neck in as if it was tapping up the egg to it. Oh. So once it starts this behavior, it's locked in. It's locked in and it has to go with it all the way through. Wow. If the egg is removed, it will continue the performance, pulling its head back as if an imaginary egg is there. And it is also shown that grey lag geese will attempt to retrieve other egg-shaped objects, such as a golf ball, a doorknob, or even a model egg too large to have possibly been laid by the <laughs> goose itself. <laughs> but they're just recognising that rough shape. Yeah. And, being, and, and, and I guess it's proximity to the nest and being like, two and two together my egg the bit i couldn't find is just how big this model egg can go. <laughs> like if you sort of put a hood over a nesting goose <laughs> and moved it next to an egg 50 stories you know was it just like <laughs> besotted in getting these giant eggs back into its nests a cool thing about fixed action patterns because they have to run to completion, it can leave individuals open to exploitation. Right. And an example given is brood parasitism, uh, with, which I'm sure you can go on to. But when baby chicks open their mouths, yeah. it triggers parent birds. They have to basically feed the bird. Yeah. So brood parasitism is, I'm sure you can let us know about the cuckoo. Yeah, so the cuckoo, essentially, people don't know what the cuckoo does. The European, uh, the common cuckoo, and many other cuckoo species around the world, lay their eggs into the nests of other birds. Their chick hatches, and its its immediate instinct, that's another instinct, is that the within the first hours of life, that chick starts to push the other eggs or the other young chicks out of that nest, so it becomes the only chick in that nest. And then as it grows, it's begging in the nest like other chicks would but it has a really intense gape on its mouth basically which is designed to be like a hyper stimulus to just be fed over and over and over again and there's even some suggestion that their begging call isn't just that it's almost got multiple layers to it so it sounds like a whole nest of chicks begging so there's like different layers to the sound it's not just like one cheap it sounds like there's lots of others nestled within there Uh, and the theory there is that it's actually replicating the begging calls of chicks as well as the giant massive gape Um, and it's just basically trying to get as much food as possible from its poor parents of a different species which is the super stimulus like the giant goose egg here yes yeah and you do get you get cases where if a bird has lost its nest recently or even if it's flying towards its nest and it sees either a cuckoo or a chick of another bird begging like they're so keyed into got to feed this gape that You'll see wrens feeding blue tits if they happen to fly past a nest oh, box really? and there's a baby chick sticking its face out. Or, yeah, if they've recently lost their own nest, then they'll just... It's no benefit to them because it's a completely separate species, but they're just so in the zone when it comes to gotta do this behaviour at this time of year or whatever that they'll just, yeah, raise other, raise other chicks in or feed other chicks inadvertently. Yeah, so I can't think of many ways of exploiting the goose 
rolling the massive eggs. Unless, I guess, you know, people are always wondering how did they get the stones to make Stonehenge? Because they were <laughs> quarried in kind of North Wales or yeah. very, very far away. And, you know, the Egyptian pyramid blocks. Had they, maybe they realised, you know, if we make these roughly egg-shaped and get some yeah. geese. <laughs> Enough geese, yeah, to roll them over. <laughs> roll them across country for us. Maybe that's how the, uh, you know, the Easter Island heads and everything. It just explains everything around the world. Any mystery, yeah, any object in a mystery location ask yourself could this have been a massive egg shape <laughs> that tricked a goose yeah actually the more i think about it the more the easter island heads could have just been the toy inside a giant kinder egg oh my god and they roll it into position <laughs> crack it open and there you have it <laughs> so these instinct behaviors are completely hardwired in mm. the other than type of top line behavior is our learned behaviours. And there are different ways that an animal might learn a behaviour. We've got imprinting. You've mm -hmm. already mentioned this. You were dead right, Conrad. Um, <laughs> observed that the young of birds such as geese followed their mothers spontaneously from almost the first day after they were hatched. Now, this is super important for an organism, for a species. Basically, it's vital for reproductive success because mm. you want the young of that species to immediately know what they are, basically. Yeah. And it almost, you know, you get those cats which have grown up around dogs and they run around like that. Yeah. And these examples are where they kind of misfire. But, you know, if you're thinking in the, in the wild, you don't want that. You don't want your young, you've put all the effort in to suddenly yeah. think it's this. Which also weirdly circles us right the way back to the cuckoo, because I know mm. you've mentioned this to me in the past, is how does a cuckoo know yeah. how to be a cuckoo? Yeah, that, they're like... I think they must be one of the strongest examples of something of an animal that is driven on purely instinctive behavior because they're raised by might be a bird that in its life will leave no more than a you know 20 20 meter squared area or whatever it, mm. you know it could be a bird that stays in a very small area um, but the cuckoo is raised having never met another cuckoo in its life but knows it's a cuckoo, knows it's got to be attracted to cuckoos, knows that it's got to sing like a cuckoo, knows that it's got to migrate to a very specific point in Africa, which it just knows. It just knows it's got to go there. It's not following any other cuckoo. Um, it's being raised by robins that live in your back garden or whatever, but it just knows it's got to go to Africa. So it, it, it must have so much hardwired behavior into it that it doesn't imprint, basically. It doesn't get affected uh, and think it's a different species. The flip side of which being the geese and the chickens. Yeah. 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 <laughs> which is what Conrad studied. And basically, they'll imprint on anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should get some baby geese and have oh, them imprint on us. Yeah. Yeah. What can you... I don't You might not know this. Can, what... Has there been any studies done into how much, like... I'm thinking... If some geese hatched, the first thing they saw was a chimpanzee. Mm. They're going to think that that chimpanzee is mum. Yep. If they hatched and saw a seal, mm. as long as it moves, mm. they're going to think, what's the threshold? Like, if they hatch and see a tortoise that moves a little bit, like, when, when does it become animal, on the animal to inanimate object scale... Tortoise is very high on the inanimate in in yeah. object end of that. Yeah, yeah. but how much, how much movement has to be in for the, the, the goslings to look at it and go, that's mum? Because as far as I'm aware, as long as it moves, they're probably <laughs> going to be like, great, 
Nailed it. <laughs> yes. But if, you, if you've got like a... I'm a Fiat Punto. <laughs> like, if you've got a wacky, waving, inflatable arm tube man thing going on next to their nest... Please don't judge my dancing. Are they just Are they just going to think that that's... That's a that's their mum. I don't know. I couldn't find that, but I really like it as a question. Yeah. Um, if you are Conrad Lorenz and you're listening to this show and back being alive, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it has to continue for a few days after hatching. Okay. So it's so this this thing about it being the thing they instantly see isn't. Well, I guess because if we go back to the bird hatching situation. Mm-hmm. It must have to repeat a number of times because if if the parent bird is away from yeah. the eggs when they hatch, yeah. you don't want it just waking up and following a leaf that yeah. sort of <laughs> drifts by in the wind. A large leaf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mother, I'm a leaf. <laughs> we then go on, and this is what I think it gets particularly cool. I mean, those three are all essential to the survival of a species. Mm-hmm. So. Great. Don't knock them. Yeah. <laughs> right? Good work. But we're now going into cultural learning. Yeah. Which is the use of the word culture seems to be slightly controversial, but uh, but it was popularized in the 40s by Japanese primatologists in particular, the mm. talking of cultural learning. Mm. You seem to be nodding wisely. Well, I, I just, what, primates was, yeah, yeah, was what I was nodding at. Of course, yeah. it's going to be the primates. Yeah. And there's a number of ways this can happen, but the two which I like in particular are one which is called stimulus and local enhancement. And the reason I'm going to mention this briefly is you mentioned cats and dogs knowing when something goes to a corner and they get excited for food. Mm. But the cultural learning example of this is where animals um, observe others doing something Mm -hmm. and then realize that kind of changes their environment and so begin to copy it yeah the example here is cats and dogs learning to open doors oh so they see another one do it yeah and then go i can do that and get that benefit well they see a human do it they see their owners interacting with the door handle i see and then begin to realize to get from a to b to open that thing yeah everything else I'm seeing is touching that yeah. so then they begin to interact with right. that and then is that it. how the velociraptors in Jurassic Park learn to open the doors to the kitchen yeah <laughs> brilliant <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah when they've been brought in there to like get the goat you know <laughs> yeah but I guess the big bit here is there are other ways that animals can kind of copy and imitate but the reason I like about this is because it suggests almost a level of problem solving mm. in that they're not what they're copying humans aren't doing it to show the cat and dog how to do it yeah humans are doing it to just open the door and go through their kitchen yeah it's the animal realizes that that particular bit of the environment is yeah. what I need to interact with in order to get what I want yeah and the other one and why cultural learning i mentioned it was popularized by japanese in the 40s is called social transmission now a really well documented example of this it was observed in a group of macaques on hachi jojima island Mm -hmm. in japan now these macaques live inland in the forest but then a group of researchers started giving them potatoes on the beach and soon the macaques started venturing onto the beach picking the potatoes up from the sand and cleaning and eating them 
About one year later, an individual was observed bringing a potato to the sea, putting it in the water with one hand and cleaning it with the other. This behaviour was then soon expressed by the individuals living in contact with her, and when they gave birth, this behaviour was also expressed by their young, a form of social transmission. Ah. So they've problem-solved it themselves, but once they've problem-solved it themselves, it then spills out around the society that that animal is living in. And does it have to be something that... Does it have to be a problem that they're solving? Does it, or can it just be something that basically I've got a bit of behavior that I learnt about I recently learnt about something and I wonder if this is basically an example of cultural social transmission so um, you know dolphins famously yeah you know when dolphins tail walk now this is not something that they do in the wild this is when they get up in sea world yeah and, so they know. get up onto their hind flipper with their whole body raised out of the water and then shimmy along with their tail. Yeah. Yeah, basically. So I found this, I heard about this example of, in 1988, a female named Billy became trapped in a polluted marina and was rescued and spent two weeks recuperating with captive dolphins. This was in Australia, South Mm -hmm. Australia. So she spent two weeks with these captive dolphins and observed them doing the tail walk. So the captive dolphins had been taught how to do the tail walk, I imagine for shows or whatever. Billy came in, completely wild dolphin, spent two weeks with them, saw them doing this behavior. After she was returned into the wild, after only two weeks, she was seen in the wild doing this tail walking behavior, getting up out the water and just shimmying along. And another dolphin, a wild dolphin called Wave, which was just a wild dolphin that Billy hung around with, also started doing the tail walking and they'd both get out the water on their hind tails and shimmy along. Wave absolutely loved it. Just like absolutely went mad for it and just kept doing it all the time and passed that skill on to her daughters, Ripple and Tallulah. So Ripple and Tallulah and Wave and Billy are now all tail walking. When Billy died, sadly prematurely, Wave started to do it, to do it even more frequently and other dolphins in the group were also observed performing this behavior. And in 2011, so this is now from 1988 to 2011. Oh, wow. So in 2011, up to 12 dolphins were absorbed tail walking, but only the females appeared to learn the skill. In October 2021, so we're talking like last year. Hang on, Australia? Yeah. Wow. A dolphin was observed tail walking over a number of hours. Now, nobody actually really knows why they're doing it because it brings no apparent advantage. It's very energy consuming, but it's gone through at least two generations. I'll tell you why they're dolphins. doing it. Because everything in the sea in Australia <laughs> is terrifying. So just get as far out of it <laughs> yeah. as they can for as long as you can. <laughs> These dolphins are delight. They finally. There's jellyfish, <laughs> <laughs> octopus, blue ringed octopus. Exactly. Sharks. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, in 2018, there was a study, and Mike Rossley says, social learning is the most likely mechanism for the introduction and spread of this unusual behavior, but it has no known adaptive function. We don't know don't know why they're doing it, but yeah, it all came from two weeks that Billy the Wild Dolphin spent with some captive dolphins. So I guess that's an example of a cultural behavior. Well, one of the reasons I particularly like it referred to as cultural behavior is if we think of the macaques on the beach or the dolphins there, the, the species of dolphin do not all exhibit this 
yeah. behavior. Yeah. It is something specific to a group. Like we've had the the fact that orcas hunt some are hunting this, some are hunting yeah. that, some are hunting this, and they all develop their different ways. Yeah. I think it's fairly reasonable to refer to that as some kind of cultural behavior. Yeah, I think so. And I think I mean, I know culture can relate to things that are very that we need, i.e. food, i.e. whatever. But that what I like about the tail walking one is there doesn't seem to be any at least obvious reason for them doing it. And when yeah. we think about our culture, although there are underlying reasons for everything, why we make art, why we do whatever, they're a bit more abstract. Yeah. And the tail walking one seems to be quite an abstract behavior that this little population of dolphins have just started doing. Yes. And the last last one I'm going to touch on is specifically referred to, and again, like, I do feel these bleed into each other a little bit i'm not gonna you know we're not here to unpick it all Mm. right but this is specifically referred to as teaching Mm -hmm. and what sets this apart is it's a highly specialized aspect of learning in which the teacher adjusts their behavior to assist to increase the probability of the learner picking it up okay so with the macaques for example they weren't seen washing any differently they weren't each individual macaque was just going about their business yeah and it it disseminated and was picked up throughout the group Mm. some examples of teaching though i've already mentioned them yeah it's our boys the orcas yes (laughs) come on we can't go we can't have a series where we don't mention them yeah specifically the ones that hunt the seals on the beach oh that do the the breaching in that the parent orcas will push and nudge the young babies up onto the they're will they properly like encouraging oh. what is quite an abnormal yeah behavior just to show them that it's okay yeah so the mothers will push them onto the shore and encourage them to attack the prey because the mother is altering her behavior to increase the chance of the young doing it yeah it's pretty clear that she's literally teaching it. Yeah. But another one that I really like is that teaching is not only limited to mammals. Mm. And like you mentioned, we can't go a series without mentioning orcas. I seem to be starting to be unable to go a series without mentioning the ants. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And an example here is that they will guide each other to food sources through a process called tandem running, in which one ant will guide a companion ant to a source of food. And it's been suggested that the pupil is able to learn the route to obtain the food in the future or teach the route to other ants. Mm. So they're like hand in hand going towards the food and then it goes, okay, I remember. Yeah. And can find its way back or take new ants there. So specifically, it's one of the few examples that exists outside of mammals. But, and going back to that bit, which why is it specifically teaching, not just copying? is because the teacher ant is actively going slower, it's actively uh, checking on the pupil, it's essentially at a detriment to itself because it could get the job done quicker yeah. if it just did it, yeah. but it's recognised that these teacher ants are slowing down, they go, they check, they make sure the ants know the landmarks. Mm, that's cool. Frequently check in with the antennas yeah. and actively show it to show the same way. It's not just done for food, but it's also done looking for new nest sites, yeah. but it's a phenomenon just seen in ants. Great love them yeah and the last bit i'm going to touch on living in groups and the act of living in groups incurs some interesting spin-offs group size can be impacted human specifically live in big groups 
and it's a very complex but effective survival strategy to live in a group mm -hmm. but it means that there are some interesting behaviors that come out of it so the social behaviors which might be seen in a group are egoistic someone being very selfish yeah. the effect on the individual doing this is that there's neutral to increased fitness there mm -hmm. but the effect on the receiver in the group is that there's decreased fitness yeah right and a lot of these can possibly be explained by genes yeah, yeah, that yeah. we're in a group to help each other out but i particularly want my you're out for yourself out for myself i think i want to end yeah. with what was my favorite line researching all this behavior okay okay and that is the behavior of revenge oh so this is an interesting behavior because it not only has a negative effect on the donor the individual doing it but it's also a negative effect on the receiver it's, it's just spite spite lose lose for everyone and for a huge time revengeful behavior yeah was at one point claimed to have been observed exclusively in homo sapiens and this is the line however other species have now been reported to be vengeful including chimpanzees unsurprising as well as reports of vengeful camels <laughs> <laughs> Both animals, chimpanzees and camels, that I would argue didn't need to be more terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> the only other animal that exhibits revenge literally has the hump. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> what, any any information on, on what they do? Or The book that this is referenced from, uh -huh. once we finish, I'm going out to buy. <laughs> the title of this book is The Ape and the Sushi Master, Cultural Reflections of a Primatologist. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How many geese book club episode one? Yeah. So it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted by Alex on Instagram and it is the Arctic Turn. Now, the Arctic Tern is a smart-looking bird that's about 30 to 40 centimetres long with a wingspan of up to 75 centimetres. They've got black caps, whitey greyish bodies and bright red beaks and feet, deeply forked tails as well, which give terns their names in other languages of sea swallows, which is quite nice. Mm. There are species that breed in big colonies of thousands on ground close to water, uh, generally in coastal sort of areas. And there's two particularly interesting bits of behaviour that you might want to consider, consider we're talking about behaviour. It is one of the most aggressive turns, fiercely <laughs> defensive of its nest and young. It will attack humans and large predators, usually striking the top or back of the head. And although it's too small to really cause any serious injury, to an animal of a human size, it is still capable of drawing blood and is capable of repelling birds of prey, foxes, cats, and even polar bears. There's some footage on YouTube uh, that was on one of the nature documentaries of Arctic terns driving away polar bears. And I can speak as someone who has been attacked by Arctic terns before on the Farne Islands, where there's a colony of thousands of them, that unless you wear a cap, I saw people getting on there without hats, absolute fools, they will draw blood. They've got really sharp, pointy beaks. The second amazing bit of behavior is that this species is also incredibly migratory. 
They chase the summers from pole to pole, breeding in the northern hemisphere in the summer and then heading south to spend six months on the Antarctic coast. So for birds nesting in Greenland, that's an annual round trip of 44,000 miles, or about 70,000 kilometres, which makes them by far the longest migration of any animal on Earth. So they've got... They've got endurance. They're very worldly. They've seen the world. So, Roddy, the question is, how many Arctic turns are too many Arctic turns? Right. I mean, the endurance is terrifying. Yeah. The longest migration of any animal on Earth by far. I think the only other things that come close are some of the things like the humpback whales, which do quite large migration. Um, but Arctic turn is a absolute marathon. And do they spend... Six months in the north. Yep. And then do the 40... Well, if it's a round trip, the 22,000 miles or whatever in... In one go. Well, not necessarily straight, but but in a short space of time. Or is it like by the time they get to the north, they're there for a month and then it's... So they... You know, the journey takes up more time than they're actually in either north or south, if that makes sense. The journey doesn't take that much time. So they're spending... So they arrive in the northern hemisphere. We think about the birds that that breed around the coast of the UK. They arrive here in sort of April time and then they'll leave in uh, late summer, autumn time. So they they are... The journeys might take... I'm guessing the journeys might take three, four weeks. Something like that to go down and they'll be fishing along the way and because they hunt they dive into the water to catch fish they can just carry on eating as they go along it's not like land birds that need to fuel up and then like bomb over the sea or the sahara they just go along the coast fishing as they go Mm -hmm. but yeah in general they spend six months in the northern hemisphere six months in the southern hemisphere and just chase the summers backwards and forwards i like the phrase chase the summers that's good lovely yeah yeah yeah. nice so do they ever come inland yeah, yeah, they come in land. You get them, especially when they're on migration, you get them flying over land, but always near water. But if you're, you know, birders that are looking at reservoirs and things like that will sometimes get Arctic turns over. But there is also the common turn, which looks very similar, which will just breed on islands in the middle of inland lakes, whereas the Arctic turn is more closely tied to coastal environments and things like that. Does the common turn migrate? Not half as much as the Arctic turn does. They have more, like, localised movements and things. Does but... the Arctic turn look at it and be like, you <laughs> slob? I definitely think. The Arctic turn is like the endurance athlete like olympian like the common turn is stood outside the weather spoons at 9 a.m <laughs> next to the yoga studio that all the arctic and they're just looking across like what are you doing exactly, with yeah. your life <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. put some effort in get up off the sofa come on yeah exactly yeah arctic turn is maybe a bit too try hard yeah. <laughs> in a, in its, you know, gym selfies, all that sort of stuff. Exactly. What you're trying to prove. Motiv- the Arctic Turn is putting out so many motivational quotes <laughs> on its Instagram. Exactly. And it's, ch- and it's got the Apple Watch. It's got all the fitness apps. It knows within in every detail all of its own personal attributes and stats. Exactly. It's uh, the percentage body fat <laughs> yeah. it's working at. It's got a YouTube channel where it puts out <laughs> fitness videos you know yeah. right so hmm. so could it be that fighting them in a place that will drain their motivation you know we've spoken about that you don't want to fight them in a gym you don't want to fight them in somewhere where they're in their element <laughs> bring them to a beer garden so well yeah, <laughs> when you mention the weather spoons surround them by just things that are going to sap all the motivation from them oh yeah and all the fish there is fried 
Yeah. So they're not looking... Fight them outside of Chippy. Calories. Here we go. Because they're, they're going to be used to... to th- their bodies aren't going to be able to handle <laughs> chip shop fish. <laughs> I mean, I want the seagulls mocking them, yeah. right? <laughs> As they turn up in their, like, lycra leggings and all this sort of stuff. Exactly. And there's a couple fat urban seagulls. You know, there's pigeons missing toes and all the rest. Pigeons that look like they eat battery acid. And these arctic terns are coming down expecting some organic, you know. Freshly caught that day. Line caught, exactly. Yeah. Haddock yeah. From, the, from the North Atlantic. And instead they've got carp that's being sold as cod. Exactly. <laughs> Fried in beer batter yeah. that's been cleaned for <laughs> some kebab shop. Okay. Right. This is our... So how do we attract them down? So I'm going to fight them outside a Midlands kebab shop. Okay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them are going around the coast. The ones around the coast aren't going to be drawn to any chip shop affair they've They're, got what they need they've got what they need exactly yeah. but i'm going to set up like a paddling pool mm. <laughs> outside a kebab shop yeah in you know stoke yeah <laughs> <laughs> or, or something i was gonna say scunthorpe but that's actually on the coast it is yeah they've been their element um wow. yeah I, I won't i won't besmirch any possible listeners but but you, you don't. You already have done. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, yeah. You know. <laughs> like, yes, they're going to come down for the paddling pool. Mm-hmm. They're going to sit. They're going to see the seagulls and the pigeons. Yeah. And they're going to think because they're so driven. They're so convinced in their influencer. <laughs> you know, they're so motivated to like yeah. have people see the best in yourself. Yeah. You know, just wake up, do the grind. Very kind of Dwayne Johnson esque oh, yeah. yeah, Instagram no. output. That's good. You know, yeah. and you're kind of looking at it and you're thinking, that's all good and well, Dwayne, but you have one hundred million dollars and a personal chef. <laughs> and your own gym. People doing your laundry. Like don't yeah. be like, just get up at four AM, you can do it. It's like, no, mate. <laughs> I've got a twelve hour shift yeah. at the hospital. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like don't come here, it's like, oh, you can have your cheat day. It's like I need to cheat every day because I <laughs> to get don't, through life. I don't have a nine figure bank balance. <laughs> don't Fucking stand there and come at me with your cow tattoo and tell me I could be the best I could be when you're playing Samoan gods and getting paid millions for it and I'm just about managing it going through the reduce style in a corner shop Tesco's, okay? We are not the same and you need to understand that your audience is not like you. That's who the Arctic turn is the Dwayne Johnson slash, I guess, Mo Farah yeah. if we're doing endurance stuff of the of the bird world. So yeah. it's going to set up the paddling pool outside the chip shop. They're going to land. They're going to start doing some inspirational stuff with the seagulls to try yeah. and get them going. More and more of them are going to land in the paddling pool because they're going to be com- competing mm-hmm. a- amongst each other for those likes and subscribes. Right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're going to see one doing it. God, I could get those followers. I need to land. Yeah. So the thing with the Arctic Turn is they are very vain, very influencer, but... I think we also need to remember they can back it up they are fierce and they can fight you know they can drive off polar bears from their colonies yeah but that's only when they're eating that diet which gives them oh. the fuel in the tank that's right true. because the next bit i'm thinking is that's that true. they are doing this migration once yep. they land i'm hoping after that 
inspirational chat to the seagulls, they do get hungry, mm. and they're like, oh, let me try this ethnic urban food. Like, you know, oh, it's so local. Exactly. They'll be they'll be gramming that. They'll, they'll be, be taking a picture. Look, I'm yeah, eating exactly. some authentic Stoke street food. Exactly. Hey guys, I just found this local kebab shop. <laughs> you know, and then they're gonna have couple bits of fried fish and boom their tank is gonna crash, crash. their body hasn't has a saturated <laughs> fat in its life <laughs> they're just like keeling over clutching their stomach exactly exactly <laughs> to be honest at which point i think i just come out and scoop them up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so who, i'm maybe i'm disguised in the kebab shop uh-huh. that's it because it's that bit of convincing that we need to do mm-hmm. i'm in the kebab shop yeah I come out and and I'm like, hey, do you want this local, locally prepared street food? Yeah, that's the that's the piece I'm playing in here. Uh huh. Maybe the the limit is how big the kitchen is. The the kitchen capacity of yeah. the is that is how much kebab or battered fish you can actually produce. It's battered. We're doing this on battered fish output per hour. Yeah, I think it's got to be. Yeah, it's the only <laughs> it's the only reasonable conclusion we can come to is this is a battered fish per hour situation. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, we're going to do the whole journey here. Mm-hmm. Some amount of slander has come my way towards the Arctic turns. They're chasing me. Uh-huh. I know they're coming for me, but I know I've got a 22,000-mile lead on them. Because yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I'm slagging them off in the winter. <laughs> okay, Tweeting them. Exactly. <laughs> Lol. Thinking fit. <laughs> they're then m- much in the way I've done with Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> I, was, I was literally just about to say, you basically give them the Dwayne Johnson rant in yeah. their comment section, <laughs> and they're coming for you. They then migrate up to get me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> They are setting, you know, I'm leaving the location on the tweet. So they, oh, good, nice. you know, luring them in here. Uh-huh. I then have a paddling pool to bring them down. Yeah. Rustle up some ropey looking seagulls, chuck yeah. them some fish. Yeah, easy to buy their allegiance, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I'm in the kitchen. I've convinced, um, you know, the, the, the owner of the kebab shop 100% is calling me big man. Just <laughs> like, that's that's the guy in my head. You know, you go, or boss, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yes, boss. Or that's the guy. And then it's it's a battered fish per hour situation. So yeah. I'm not too familiar with the fryer industry, but I'm going to look for the kebab shop, which has the model fryer that can put out... Are they endangered at all? No. They're doing all right? I'm oh, doing all right. There's fucking, a lot of them. Uh, 100 fish an hour. <laughs> Is that how good? I mean, I used to work... I worked in a kitchen very briefly... We never fried fish. It is intense. They eat small fish as well, I should say. You know, they're only... Oh, so like the... They're only 35 to 45 centimetres long. So they're the, doing like white bait when you get the... So, yeah, so it's tiny. You know, they're not they're not like gannets that are going down for mackerel and stuff. They're yeah. eating little eating little fish. So you could chuck a load of white bait in. White bait is slightly more gastropub vibes, but mm, we're going to skim over that. We're going to stick with the... Sprats. It's a, it's a kebab shop that does white bait. It's, <laughs> a, it's very you know, up and coming. Gentrification's really... <laughs> Gentrification in Stoke is really off the chain. It's really gripping. <laughs> I reckon if they eat small fish, 10 thickly battered white bait, I reckon will put a turn to sleep. Yeah. That's my maths there. Uh, I reckon so. <laughs> stick with it. And then those like frying baskets, you get 10 in, I reckon there's like 100 per basket. When I used to work in a kitchen, it is intense, especially if they're having me do pot wash as well, mm. because I'm going to have to give something back to, yeah. you know, boss man <laughs> to, to have it all balance out. So I'll do a three hour shift, have a break, 
So three hours, three hours of cooking fish. Yeah. Shift. <laughs> That's how many turn I could take. Take in a fight. I could take in a fight, which is maybe, let's say, two hundred fish an hour. Mm-hmm. There's ten fish per turn. That's twenty, 20 turn turns. an hour. So sixty turn. Sounds good to me. I reckon that's decent. I think that's decent. Yeah, and the math stacks up. (laughs) The logic is flawless. So we've had a question in from Hannah. Hello, Hannah. Who wants to know, which animal would make the best Ratatouille-type chef, if not a rat? Hmm. So we're going to replace... Ratatouille <laughs> with another animal. What's it going to be? My brain went a, <laughs> a blamange tan. It <laughs> doesn't even work as a doesn't, joke. It doesn't even sound anything like it. Well, I thought Ratatouille oh, rat, rat, the dish, you know, I couldn't think of any. Yeah, I see what you yeah, thought, but yeah. you didn't execute it. No, it. it <laughs> Absolutely crap! Like that's where someone takes off out the hurdles and just hits the first first hen- fence. Yeah, so I suppose we could think of it from the way of um, similar puns. Well, it's just a fish cooking uh, fish and uh, chips, and whether and whether there's anything that can be as like a ratatouille, uh, <laughs> or we could think of it from the uh, from the- literally any other angle which might make sense. <laughs> So, my first thoughts, has it got to be small enough to hide under a hat? Well, how big's the hat? Good question. But I think hat size is limited. Hat <laughs> size and neck strength <laughs> limit the size of the animal. Okay. To be fair, she did just say it would make a good chef, but she also added in the ratatouille element. She said could replace ratatouille as an animal chef. The puppet master situation. Yeah, that's that's why I think it probably is. Is there anything out there which cooks? There are animals what? which farm. Yeah, ants. There are animals which, like, store food. There are so a- have a larder. There are animals that soften food, take it to water. Um, okay. So things like stale bread, birds and things will just dunk them in water to make them softer. Oh. But is there anything remotely like cooking food? I mean, the closest thing I can think of, but this is not from the cooking perspective, is you have the black kites in Australia, which, which is, this is really fucking cool. Um, but they will, if they find fire on the end of it, like on a mm. stick or whatever, they'll carry a twig of fire and then drop it in another bit of grassland to set fire to it. And then as all the creatures come out of the fire, the kites grab them as they try to escape but that's not cooking but it is the closest thing i can think of as like an animal using fire are there any animal because cooking implies heat yeah so we'll take that out but are there any animals which essentially make a salad so like prepare not even prepare i mean you've got literally adding two ingredients Mm -hmm. okay like Uh, a chimp they get they'll put a stick in the termite mound and they get the termites but then will they ever, like, add dunk, seasoning? Dunk it in honey. Yeah. Well, that's... Um, that's so, fair. It's got to fit under a hat. Yeah, it's got to fit under a hat. <laughs> or it... If... And if we're bending the size of a hat, it's got to be able to be held up by a neck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's got to at least sit on your head, yeah. Okay. First rule of geese is it can't be a great ape. It can't be a great ape. You wouldn't want one on your head anyway, would no. you? No. I was thinking, like, 
the classic capuchin monkeys and things, but they break because they break nuts open with stones. Yeah. So they will, yeah, put nuts. There's like particular hollows in trees that they find and that they like that will hold a nut, and then they go and grab a stone and like smash it open. It's a bit of preparation. What's the bird that gets the spine, like a cactus spine? Oh. And it will like fight, like a chef's knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it will... Skewer things. Yeah, and they particularly look for like the right cactus spine that's long enough and pointy enough. Woodpecker finches, snaps off cactus spines and makes a kebab. Because mm. it's the, got the wood, a, to compensate for its short tongue. It's got a handle on tool use. It definitely fit under a hat. But you know that that's something which is literally that's as close as I can think of to an actual cooking tool as we have them. Yeah, octopus. I thought about octopus only for dexterity reasons and it being able to pull multiple parts of your hair because that's <laughs> yeah. you know that's how ratatouille controls remy is it yeah remy's the rat yeah. an octopus would be able to control a lot yeah you'd be able to really do some quite fine dining with an octopus <laughs> puppeteering yeah exactly being the puppeteer do i think it's great at cooking though probably it's quite intelligent mm-hmm I think it would be good at the surf aspect of a surf and turf. <laughs> <laughs> Less good at the turf. Yeah. So what would be good at the turf? Um, no big cat. Yeah, although they've got the most experience. Yeah, but you couldn't pay me to... <laughs> put a jaguar on your hat. Put a jaguar in a chef's hat and ask me to prepare a surf and turf. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I don't care what the dish is. Um, I was going to say, what about... I'm thinking of something small that eats, that's got experience of eating a steak or something like that. Because big cat's obviously too big. You go down to the smaller cats and they're hunting mice and things like that. I've seen squirrels in London eating chicken wings. (laughs) Okay. What if, instead of one animal... We don't have to run with this, but instead of one animal cooking the whole meal... Ooh... What's your per course chef <laughs> across three courses? Across three courses. Who's doing your starter, your main, and your dessert? Well, I mean that depends on what it what it is. So I have to choose my well dessert. Who's going to be good? Who's going to be do, good at doing a sweet? Some pastries and only cheesecakes. Well, I, w- I was just going honey, honey, <laughs> bees. A hat full of bees. <laughs> okay, so dessert, we're having a hat full of bees. <laughs> okay, Okay. great. Hat full of bees. Uh, we could have an octopus as, we could have a starter of shellfish or something. Scallops. Yeah, octopus can sort that. Yep. Bosh. No, no problem. Octopus's garden. Yeah. You know, they, the, yeah. The shells outside, we know they, they know their way around a scallop. Definitely, definitely. And they can prepare a shellfish. Yeah. Like no one else. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> Nothing does surf. <laughs> um, so then it's just the main course, which... I don't think... If, okay, there's a fourth course, we're having an amuse-bouche <laughs> before our starter. That's my Darwin's Finch. It's just oh, going to yeah, pluck yeah. a single couple things with cocktail Some sticks. Like canapes. It can leave the spines in them. Yeah, It's doing the canapé. So amuse-bouche... Darwin's finch. Woodpecker finch. Woodpecker yeah. finch. Yeah. Starter, an octopus, scallops, I'm thinking pesto. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking pan-fried, seared. Yeah. And something 
something really avant-garde, I think, an octopus. It'd be like pan-fried scallops with with crab dressing. It'd just, it'd just be like sunfish dressing. Yeah. <laughs> Served in an urchin. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Okay. Dessert bees. <laughs> just, I, I don't think we need to describe any more than that. Desserts bees. Nothing further from us there. Um, Handful of bees. <laughs> so the main course has got to be... I really don't want to go close to Ratatouille, but I'm finding it very hard not to, mm. in that it's like a raccoon with a sort of yeah. bin special. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What animal might make a nice vegetarian dish, though? Yeah, but they're all going to have hooves. Mm. And which, A, unless it's unless like a, it's a mouse deer. Like a, <laughs> well, like a yak. You're going to put a yak under your hat. <laughs> yeah, that's true. A toucan. Oh. Could make a nice fruit but then maybe salad. that's more of a dessert, isn't it? Mm. You could chuck a toucan in there with bees and see what Ch- happens. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm coming back to raccoon. Yeah, I think it's a raccoon, and it's literally some kind of, got the hands to do it. It's some kind of dumpster, dumpster, dumpster menagerie, delight. dumpster delight. Raccoon's dumpster. Roddy's dumpster delight, and no one knows it's actually the raccoon. <laughs> raccoon Roddy's <laughs> dumpster delight under your head. That's doing it under your hat. Woodpecker finch, a tray of a moose bouche, cocktail sticks left in, delightful. Starter, octopus, pan-fried scallop served on an urchin mm. with miscellaneous mollusk dressing. Yeah, squid ink, squid, squid ink. ink dressing. Yeah. Main course: the raccoon's dumpster delight, and it really takes a turn, doesn't it? Like halfway through this meal. <laughs> <laughs> and the dessert is a. <laughs> we don't actually know. There's just bees thrown up. Like, there's just, just honey thrown up onto a plate. Yeah. It's, it's the dessert. Is the chef comes out of the kitchen with an empty plate and vomits up a plate full of honey in front of you. Does a little dance <laughs> to show you where the nearest source of nectar is and then walks off. <laughs> Three stars, Lonely Planet. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this special episode made in conjunction with the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour. You can find them at asab.org if you want to learn more about their mission to understand and enlighten us all about the world of animal behaviour. Please do keep spreading the gospel of geese far and wide. We love continually seeing it grow. And as always, we appreciate any donations, big or small, over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howmanygeese to help us make this podcast in our spare time. That's all from us for now. We'll see you again very soon.